Let's open our Bibles to Acts chapter 11. Acts chapter 11. We're just going to look at a few verses here, verses 27 through 30. But uh, I will be referencing a lot of other passages. So I wouldn't even try to flip uh, when I'm going in between them. Maybe just take it in. If you're a note taker, write them down. Um, But really what we're looking at is Acts chapter 11, verses 27 through 30. The last few verses of chapter 11. Now in these days, prophets came down from Jerusalem to Antioch. And one of them named Agabus stood up and foretold by the spirit that there would be a great famine over all the world. This took place in the days of Claudius. So the disciples determined, everyone according to his ability, to send relief to the brothers living in Judea. And they did so, sending it to the elders by the hands of Barnabas and Saul. This is God's word. Let's pray. Lord, you have given us your word and we need your grace to receive it. Help us to understand. Give us the grace to repent where we are convicted to obey, where we are called to believe the truth that you have revealed. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. You know that saying, it's better to give than receive, right? You know who said it? Guess. Who said it? Jesus, that's right. All right, trick question. What gospel does Jesus say that in? None of them. Jesus is quoted as saying that in Acts chapter 20. It's not in one of the gospels. That's why I said it was a trick question. I wouldn't do that to you on purpose without telling you. You're going to get it wrong. Yeah, it's in, uh, he's quoted in Acts. Jesus said many things that are not written in the gospels, and one of them made it into the book of Acts. It's better to give than receive. Why is that? Because it's definitely not true when you're a kid. It's definitely not better to give than to receive when you're a kid. No way. It's always better to receive the gifts, the candy, the stockings, the fun, the birthday, the cake, all the good stuff. It's always better, at least from our perspective, to receive than it is to give. But we know, I mean, Jesus told us, right, and it's in the book of Acts, it's why is it better to give than to receive? Because it's not wrong to receive, right? Receiving's good. We agree on that? Receiving is good. We all need to receive help, kindness, mercy, grace. So receiving isn't a problem, but why is giving better? I believe giving is better because in giving, you are actually reflecting the character of God. God doesn't receive anything from you or me as if he needs anything. He extends He condescends and gives and helps the undeserving. So when we give gifts, when we give something to someone, whether it's our time or our resources, whether it's a conversation or or, or being hospitable, whatever it is, when we are giving to somebody else, we are demonstrating something that is true about God, that he is generous and kind and giving even to the undeserving. I think that's why it's better in general. And I want us to consider that as we look at this verse. And here's the principle. The one principle I want us to hold on to because this is gonna be the thread that runs through the message and it is a truth that I think we need to wrestle with maybe more than we tend to. The principle is this. It's the gospel that moves us to meet one another's needs from our ability and for God's glory. There's a lot in there and every word is important. The gospel moves us to meet one another's needs from our ability 
and for God's glory. Hang on to that. We're gonna kind of walk through this as we look at the passage. Now, our passage is just a few verses, right? So we're gonna break it down into two basic sections, right? So those of you who like to take notes and get it, keep everything organized, nothing creative here, very, very simple. We're gonna talk about what happened, okay? We're gonna talk about what happened. Then we're gonna talk about what it means. So we will look at the account and then we will focus on the point. All right, and so we're just gonna look at all of these verses, we're just gonna walk through them verse by verse together. First, what happened? What is this account telling us? Well, in verses 27 and 28, we see that there is a need that is being identified. It says in, the, in those days, these prophets came down from Jerusalem to Antioch, right? So from Jerusalem, Judea, right, where the people of God were, this is the, the, the Jewish Christian context, right? These Christian prophets that were Jewish Christians left and went to Antioch, a, a Gentile context where the church was at. So in those days, these prophets came down from Jerusalem to Antioch, and one of them named Agabus, by the way, awesome name, metal, Agabus stood up and foretold by the Spirit that there would be a great famine over all the world. So there is a need, a famine is coming. It's a significant famine. It's a great famine, not great, yay, great, like massive. This is a famine that's going to hit. It's going to impact all kinds of people. It'll hurt some people more than others. It'll be more devastating in some regions than others, but it is on the way. And it's, this was not predicted because of meteorological studies. These are prophets that were filled with the spirit that came and spoke this truth. You see, the prophets in the Old Testament and in the New, right, they, they were... There were two things at times. Uh, they were revelators, right? Meaning that they would preach the revelation of God. They would speak truth about God. Uh, their words were a revelation of God's will, his character, his work. Sometimes they would, they would, uh, they would reveal God's plan for redemption and other times they would foretell of God's coming judgment. That's the other thing that they did. They were not just revelators, uh, they were also uh, predictors. Right? And it wasn't a guessing game for them. Uh, when they did this, they were predicting coming events because the Spirit of God had told them that something is going to happen. Sometimes it was a, a message of deliverance or blessing. Sometimes it was more bad news. Judgment is going to come in short order, so be prepared. This famine is coming. That's what they're telling. Agabus shows up. Agabus, we don't know a ton about him, but he shows up. And here he is preaching, saying that there is a famine that is going to impact this whole area. Now this famine is going to happen during the reign of Claudius. We know historically that this happened between 41 and 54 AD. But it says that this famine is going to impact what? The world. This is a famine over all the world. Now like you can look at that and go like, wait, the whole, the whole world is famine for like every single individual to constitute the human race at this period of time? There was no food on planet earth? What are we talking about? One of the principles in interpreting scripture that you want to keep in mind is, is that words sometimes have different meanings in different contexts, okay? So the word world, right, when John uses that word, sometimes John is saying world uh, to indicate the, the moral, spiritual uh, philosophy that governs the world that is ungodly, anti-Christian, right? That's the, it's the world, the, the world is, is, a, is a way of thinking and being that is corrupt, Sometimes it refers to God's creation. Sometimes it refers to humanity in general. Sometimes it refers to kinds of people. I'll, I'll give you an example. 
In John chapter 12, Jesus, his ministry is expanding. He's reaching all kinds of people and the Pharisees ain't having it. They don't like it. They're frustrated and they're trying to stop it and it ain't working. And at one point, and it's in uh, John 12, 19. Now you can look it up. In John 12, 19, the Pharisees say, look, we're not doing any good. The whole world has gone after him. He says, they, he said, they say the world has, is following Jesus. Is the world following Jesus at this point? Is every individual to constitute the human race following Jesus? No, not even every individual in the city that they're in is following Jesus, right? Because they're there and they're a part of that region. It just means that all kinds of people, it means like everybody without distinction, not everyone without exception. So it's, this word world can mean a lot of different things. And here in Acts, it means this it's going to be a famine that takes over the, this immediately known world. It's going to be a huge problem. It's a famine that's going to affect the Roman Empire and many of the people that are held under Roman occupation. By the way, let's just take a note here. Prophets show up from Jerusalem. They come to Antioch, like, hey, we got some prophets here. This is what is going to tell you what's up. Like, sweet, bring it, let me have it. What is the good news? There's going to be a lot of poverty. There's going to be a, a, a lot of hunger. Things are not going to be, well, just another little example that we see all throughout Scripture and all of church history that God's plan for your life is not for you to be healthy and wealthy. It's just not. It's not his plan. Some of you will have, some of you might have both for a period of time. Most of us will have a little bit of one or the other. <laughs> and, and some of us just don't get either. Usually that's our own fault. Anyways, that's just not God's plan. That's not, the, that's not the promise, right? We don't have this promise of peaceful, easy living because we're now following Jesus. We, we are not exempt from the afflictions of the world. So they get the message, famine is coming. Why? What's the point of this? You can't change it. You can't stop famine. So what are they gonna do? Why are they being told about this? They are given a heads up in order to be a help. That's why. They're giving a heads up in order to be a help. Now, it doesn't say, uh, the, 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 the prophet here isn't asking for help. He's simply announcing famine is coming. It's going to impact everybody, but it's gonna wind up affecting Judea more than it will Antioch. And they're gonna need help. And so there's a need that we see in verses 27 and 28. Famine is coming. In response to that, we see the church offering help, offering a gift. See verse 29. So the disciples, note that word, the disciples. That's men and women. That's brothers and sisters. That's the church. So the disciples determined everyone according to his ability to send relief to the brothers living in Judea. And they did so, sending it to the elders by the hand of Barnabas and Saul. All right, so the disciples determined to help. Hear that, the disciples determined to help. This wasn't just like some church leadership structure that made a decision and said, okay, now we're going to take 30% of what we take in. We're going to send it on. That's fine. That's okay, whatever. But that's not what happened. This was the church together saying, we need to help. We must help. We want to help. We are all in. So the disciples determined to help and their help was two things. It was voluntary and relative. It was voluntary, it was not compulsive, it was not mandatory, it wasn't like, you're out of here if you don't give a certain amount, it wasn't like that. It was voluntary, people gave of themselves willingly, and secondly, it was relative. 
as they were able. Meaning some people could give more money if money was the thing given than somebody else. It doesn't mean that the person who gave more money necessarily made a bigger sacrifice. Sometimes the person that gives less money is giving a bigger sacrifice because they have less overall. But as people had the ability, then they were contributing to help their brothers and their sisters in Judea. This is huge. And this is reflected in scripture, right? 2 Corinthians uh, chapter 9, verse 7. Paul says, each one must give as he has decided in his heart, not reluctantly or under compulsion, for God loves a cheerful giver. You should give from your ability from the heart you shouldn't be forced to do it and you shouldn't be annoyed that you're doing it right it should be a joyful offering sacrifice to serve to help others and one of the things that's really amazing about this is that this is one of those early actions that is continuing to break down the wall of division between Jew and Gentile and it's coming from the Gentile side the Jewish Christians are the ones that are going to be in, in more need here and the Gentiles are like older brothers and sisters, they are the ones that had the scripture. They were raised with the scripture. They know the laws, the covenants, the promises. So it's like, it's kind of like how I think about Presbyterians, right? Because they were around longer than Baptists and uh, they're a little more sophisticated, you know, a little more buttoned up, tucked in, you know, the whole thing. I love them. And it's like these, these, these Gentile Christians looked at their Jewish brothers and sisters and said, we got you. We want to help you. We want to take the opportunity to serve you when you need help. It's actually beautiful. And so what do they do? They start to get everything together. They get organized like that. They get organized and then they send help via Saul and Barnabas. In other words, they send the two most well-known representatives that they could, gifted teachers and preachers, but it wasn't about that. It was people that Jerusalem would recognize, would understand. So they sent people to take this gift. The gift was brought to the elders of the church in Jerusalem. And then from there, it went to everybody that was in need. I love this story. It's just a few verses. I love it. Part of what I love is that in this, the church is acting. It's actually doing something, and it's doing something that, uh, that doesn't seem to be super, like, mission-focused, right? Where's the preaching of the gospel here? Where's the making of disciples? Where's the program? Where's the worship music? Like, what's going on? But this is essential Christian living, they saw their brothers and their sisters in need and they said, we have to act. That's important. There's a real need and they just didn't talk about it. They didn't just sympathize. You know, whenever there's a tragedy in America, there's always the expression, thoughts and prayers. Thoughts, our thoughts and our prayers go out to those who are afflicted by or affected by this devastating situation. Thoughts and prayers. Now, there are people that offer their thoughts and prayers with a sincere heart and uh, as, as a meaningful expression of love and concern. And there are people that offer thoughts and prayers as cover for their inactivity or general indifference. In fact, you can kind of see it politically sometimes. But what's interesting is that there are people on the other side who will be like thoughts and prayers. We don't want your thoughts and your prayers. Keep your thoughts and your prayers to your help, yourself. Your thoughts and your prayers aren't helping anybody. We need help. Do something. Don't just say something. And I'll be honest, I'm sympathetic to both sides of this sort of argument. 
Because on the one hand, yes, if you're just using thoughts and prayers as a cover for your inactivity, like James says, if somebody is hungry and they come to you and you say, well, be warmed and be filled, but don't help them, you're dead. You're spiritually dead. You don't have faith. Your faith is useless. That's what James says. So I get that. Like, yeah, okay, I don't want superficial, empty words. But on the other hand, if someone is saying, hey, I see you in your need, in your misery, I see you in your affliction, and I remember you, I have you in my heart, I care about you, I love you, I pray for you, I lift you up before God and pray with eager expectation that he's gonna do something to help you because I can't do anything but that right now, but I can do that, and God can do far more than any of us can do, even collectively. Well, I'm very sympathetic to that. Don't be so reactionary when somebody on the other side is like, oh, stop with your thoughts and prayers. How are they right? Ask, how, how might they be right? Well, maybe they're calling out hypocrisy. You know, the stuff Jesus calls out, James calls out, his brother, Paul calls it out. I love here the church is doing something. They're acting and, it's, and they don't, they're not being told to. They're just going all in. So that's, that's what happened. That's the what. That's the account. So what's the point? What do we do with this? What are we supposed to do with it? What does it mean? Well, let's go back to our summary, right? The, the main idea, the gospel moves us to meet one another's needs from our ability, but for God's glory. So what do we mean by gospel? We use that word a lot here. We try to explain it as much as we can. The word gospel means good news. So let me explain it in a little bit different of a way than maybe we have in some recent messages that I've given, right? Of course, we always talk about the good news being found in the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus. If you don't have the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus, you have no gospel, nothing there. Might be interesting, might even be emotionally supportive, but it's not a gospel, it's not good news from God. Life, death, and resurrection, where Jesus by his life fulfills all of God's commands, the ones that you and I broke. He kept them perfectly. So through faith in him, we get this gift of righteousness, what we lack, right? When he died on the cross, he died to pay the penalty for our sins, right? The judgment that we deserve, he took so that we could be forgiven. In his resurrection, he's conquered death by the Holy Spirit. Now that Holy Spirit raises us from spiritual death, dwells in us, moves us through the Christian life and ensures that we will persevere to the end when we experience a resurrection of our own. So the gospel is found in the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus. But I'd like you today to think about the gospel like this. In the gospel, God is helping us according to his love and ability. That's what he's doing. God helps us, the undeserving, according to his love and his ability. You see, only God is capable of saving us. Only God is capable of rescuing us, of helping us. What kind of help do we need? We need to be forgiven of our sins. We need the image of God to be restored in us. We need to, to rediscover the purpose that we have for existing on this planet, in our particular society, in this particular day and age. We need redemption from temptation. We need help against the devil. We need a lot and we have all of these things in Jesus Christ. God helps us according to his love and his ability. You see, it's the love part is important, right? Because God, God has the ability to help. Only he can do it 
But just because you have the ability doesn't mean you actually help somebody, right? You can have the ability and not do the help. Not be, uh, I was telling first service, because it just popped into my head, so I'll do it again. I don't know if it'll work. But uh, so yesterday, uh, I was, I was, I was uh, on the couch and my favorite daughter was in my chair, the chair that the family bought me for Father's Day that was supposed to be for me. So my favorite, my favorite child is sitting in my chair. So I'm laying on the couch. We're both on our phones, chilling, just killing some time. Like maybe they're for an hour, I don't know. And then one of the dogs comes up and the dog wants to go outside. Now we both know what needs to be done. We both have the ability to do it. But neither one of us had love in our hearts to actually do the thing. We were both look. We weren't looking at each other, but we were kind of looking at each other like, who's going to do it? Who, like we, like just because you have the capacity to do it doesn't mean that you have the motive to do it. By the way, I didn't do it. She did it. But anyways, but God has the, it's, he has the love and he, he has the ability to actually help us. And we need real help. Not that different, right? It's more spiritually oriented. Not that different from what we see here because we are afflicted with a spiritual poverty. Right? We are poor. There is a spiritual famine that all of humanity exists in. In fact, there's this great passage in Revelation chapter 3. In Revelation 3, starting in verse 15, uh, this is one of the seven letters to the seven churches. And uh, in, in, in this one, in the letter to the church in Laodicea, there is a, some rebuke coming, right? Jesus says, I know your works. They're neither cold nor hot. Would that you were either cold or hot. So because you are lukewarm, in other words, there's nothing going on. Because you are lukewarm and neither cold nor hot, I will spit you out of my mouth. Because you say... I am rich, I have prospered, and I need nothing, not realizing that you are wretched, pitiable, poor, blind, and naked. That's not just who they are. That's who we are. That's who we all are as human beings who are sinners in need of God's mercy. All of humanity is the same in this. We are wretched, poor, we are blind, we are needy, and we do not have the capacity to redeem ourselves, to rescue ourselves out of that situation. And so what is the answer? What does Jesus tell them? Oh, well, you're poor and you're needy. Well, he says in verse 18, well, I counsel you then, uh, buy from me gold refined by fire so that you may be rich and white garments that you may clothe yourself and the shame of your nakedness may not be seen. Oh, and buy from me salve to anoint your eyes so that you may see. How are poor people who are blind and incapable of supporting themselves supposed to go to Jesus and buy this stuff? They ain't got money. And that's, that's the point, right? That's the point. Jesus is saying, like, you can only buy it from me because I won't charge you. I take that charge upon myself. You can come to me. You can buy. You can buy as much as you want. You, can, you will have more than you need, but you got to come to me to get it. You come by faith. And this is not just said here. This idea we see throughout Scripture. In fact, in Isaiah uh, chapter 55, verse 1, here God says, Come, everyone who thirsts, right? The thirsty. Come to the waters, and he who has no money, come buy and eat. Come buy wine and milk without money and without price. That's how God works. He has the heart and the ability to help the undeserving. That's the gospel. That's the good news. He just keeps offering this help that you do not deserve. You can hardly imagine. And he offers it for free. 
Jesus picks this up in, in John's gospel in John chapter six uh, in verse 35. Jesus says, I am the bread of life and whoever comes to me shall not hunger. Whoever believes in me shall not thirst. Or John seven thirty-seven. Jesus says, if anyone thirsts, let him come to me and drink. And whoever believes in me, as the scripture has said, out of his heart will flow rivers of living water. There is a spiritual famine and we are all dying in this world on the precipice of entering eternity into chaos and outer darkness. And here comes Jesus saying like, no, I've got food for you. I've got drink for you. I've got life for you. I've got redemption for you. Come and get it from me for free. In 2 Corinthians 8, 9, here, here Paul says, for you know the grace, right, the help, the undeserved help. For you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ that though he was rich, ability, rich, not financially rich. Jesus was poor. But we're talking about the second person of the Trinity. We're talking about the Son of God. He was rich in glory and righteousness, in purity and holiness. He was rich in glory. I'll say it that way. Yet for your sake, he became poor so that you by his poverty might become rich. That's the gospel. Jesus, who is rich, condescends, takes on our sin, our guilt, our debt, suffers on the cross, dies and is buried. There's his poverty. He takes on our poverty so that we can take on his riches, not in that we are somehow becoming gods, but that we are becoming the children of God, adopted into the family, accepted now and forever. This is why Jesus says in the Beatitudes in like Matthew 5, 3 or whatever, uh, blessed are the poor in spirit. Those are the ones who are blessed because it's only the ones who recognize their poverty, their spiritual poverty, who are then able to recognize and receive the gift of God's help of his grace that is so undeserved. This is the gospel that we believe. This is the gospel that moves us to meet other people's needs. And this, this motive that we're talking about here, it's because it's supposed to work like this anyways. When you become the recipient of grace, when you become the recipient of mercy, dramatic mercy, eternity changing mercy, when you become the recipient of mercy, you're supposed to become the practitioner of mercy. You're supposed to become the practitioner of grace once you have experienced grace. That's how it's supposed to work. It doesn't always work that way, but it is supposed to. That's why we say the gospel is what moves us to meet one another's needs, right? And there's many scripture passages that we can look at, and I'm just gonna throw them out there. If you're a note taker, Romans 12, 13, Hebrews 13, 16. Just don't have time to go to them all. But what do we do with this? We are called by God to be kind and generous and to meet one another's needs whenever we see the, the, the need arise as we have the ability. 
How do we even begin to do this? How does the gospel move us to meet one another's needs? Well, it begins with awareness. You actually have to be able to identify needs, the needs of the people around you. Now, sometimes the people around you, you're only gonna be around them for a day or an hour. You think it's an accident that God put that person in your life for an hour? It's not. If, you are, if you're the person that you're sitting next to on the plane is a person that God put there, that does not mean that you have to scripture bomb them the whole time. It doesn't mean that you have to take a spiritual inventory of their life. And, but it does mean that, listen, if you are able to identify a need of some sort and have the capacity to fix it, are you willing to? And the willingness comes from a heart of love. Are you willing to offer your help as you are able? Maybe it's money, maybe it's time, maybe it's words, maybe it's some varied form but specific kind of assistance. Are you willing to help? And I'll tell you why we're not willing to help. We're only not willing to help when the motive isn't love. Like it's, we say the gospel moves us, right? But the way it works is the gospel takes root in our hearts. What Jesus has done takes root in our hearts. And because we've experienced grace, now we demonstrate grace. Like because we know the love of God, we love others as God loves us. Motive becomes the love. In, um, in John, John's gospel, John chapter 15, starting in verse 12. This is my commandment, that you love one another as I have loved you. Greater love has no one than this, that someone lay down his life for his friends. Look, you may not be called upon to lay down your life for the people around you, for your friends, for your brothers and sisters, but you will certainly be called to lay down your self-interests. You are already called to lay down yourself, to deny yourself, to pick up your cross and follow Jesus. You are not a good friend if you do not deny yourself for the benefit of your friend. That doesn't mean that you become a doormat and let abusive friends take advantage of you. It doesn't mean that at all. But it does mean that you seek their good, their welfare, and want to help them if you, as you have the capacity to do so. And not because you're told to, but because you want to, because it's coming from a place of love. The motive is love here, but the aim is different. The motive, what moves us, right, is love that's connected to the gospel, but the aim is the glory of God. And what I mean is the, the aim, what you're shooting for here when you're serving other people is not for your own glory, though I know a lot of people like to think that way, right? That a lot of people will do good things in order to look good, for their name to be up, to be noticed, to be recognized. And there's nothing wrong with feeling good about doing a good thing. That's normal. You give your spouse an amazing gift. You give your, your kids an amazing experience, right? You take your friends out for a great night. You do something nice for somebody who's really in need and you're able to serve them and help them and encourage them. And that feels good. It's supposed to. Godliness feels good. Shouldn't feel bad about that. But that's not why we do it. We don't do it for us. And really, like the aim is not even ultimately, it's not the, 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 the person that we're helping. That's a part of it. It's part of it. But ultimately, the goal is the glory of God. We do it ultimately for him. This is why it's better to give than receive because in giving we are demonstrating the glory of God, his character. Like in Matthew 5, 16, right? Jesus says, let your light shine before others that they may see your, what's the words? Good works and what? Glorify your father who is in heaven. Your good works, how you serve, how you help, what you do. And let me just say this also as an aside quickly here. Um, if you are the one that's in need, 
You have to let people know that you are in need. It's irresponsible of you not to let people know that you are in need. I say this as a person who doesn't want anybody to know that I am in need. I want you all to leave me alone. I do not want your help. But I need your help. Desperately. I'm just wired in such a way like I'd rather just keep it to myself. It's not even that I'm embarrassed as much as I like that you might know. I'm, it's, a, it's a kind of perverted pride where I just would rather, I'll say like, well, I don't want to bother anybody. But what it really is, is I would just want to deal with things on my own. And we're not wired for that. I'm not wired for it. My brain is wired to think that way, but it's wrong. If you are in need, you got to let people know. There's always that person. It hasn't happened here, but it's happened in other churches that I've pastored. Somebody's really mad because they had pneumonia and then they were out for like a week and a half and nobody said anything. And we were like, we didn't know. You didn't tell anybody, you didn't call anybody. You missed one Sunday. Uh, so it, like, what are you talking about? They're all mad. Like, why? Like, you got, you got to tell us. And here's the thing. When you share your needs with others, it doesn't mean you're asking for help. You're just letting them know where you're at. You're saying, this is what I'm going through. This is really tough, man. Things are really difficult. The Antiochian Christians weren't asked to help. They were just told of the problem. All right, so let me, let me just, let me wrap it up with this, okay? The gospel moves us to meet one another's needs from our ability, but for God's glory. I just want to say two things, right? One thing to Christians and one thing to those people who are not yet Christians. If you are a Christian, I just want to encourage you, please be people who rejoice in and reflect your salvation. You should rejoice in salvation. That is natural. I want you to rejoice in it. I want you to savor it. It should be beautiful and awesome. It should be so fulfilling. But you should also be reflecting that salvation to other people. You should imitate your father in heaven who loved you when you were unlovable. You should imitate the example of your savior, savior who served you in such a way that he was willing to be obedient to the point of death in order to rescue you. You should be moved by the spirit of God who dwells in you who leads you to help you to see and identify those needs. And please remember when you're doing this, you're, you're not supposed to help the deserving. You're supposed to help the needy. Sometimes the needy are deserving. They're my favorite because it's easier. I want to help the deserving, right? You, we're supposed to help the needy. Many of, much of the time they're not deserving. You and I are called to help jerks thankless people like us. You think we're any different? We're the most thankless lot of people. Like God deals with us. How grateful are we for our salvation? Well, there are moments where we're super grateful. Listen to us sing. Watch me raise my hands. It's all sincere. It's all real. But then 35 minutes later, I'm yelling at my kid, wishing I was a, was a, was a single person. No, we're not. We're called to help needy people. It's a part of what we're supposed to do. We're wired this way by God, rewired to be a people who out of a sense of love, this impulse moves us to see a, night, to see a need and go, how can I help? Maybe I'm gonna offer consistent, sincere prayers or maybe I can offer my time. I can sometimes do both, I suppose. In other words, I just, don't just savor the salvation that you have, share it. And to non-Christians, those of you that are not yet believers, um, I say not yet because I'm very hopeful that you will believe. Because like you, I sat in a church service uh, 
as a teenager for the first time not knowing anything and hearing some weird preacher, some Baptist preacher talk about Jesus. And I had no idea that I would shortly thereafter be converted myself. I just want you to know that you need to recognize this truth about yourself that you are very, very needy. I don't mean in that annoying way, like where we're just like constantly whining and asking for help. I mean, like you are profoundly needy. You are in a desperate situation. You have been born into a spiritual poverty. There is no food. There is no drink. Destruction is certain. You need God's grace. You need divine help. It's the only help that can actually rescue you, to rescue you from your spiritual poverty. And as we saw in 2 Corinthians 8 9, I'm going to close with this verse. This is how God deals with sinners like us. You're no more or less needy than I am. We're the same. And we see the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ in that though Jesus was rich, yet for our sake he became poor so that by his poverty we might become rich. As Christians, we should be living this out. Yes, preaching the gospel. Yes, making disciples through instruction, but also by living lives of mercy and generosity, helping those who are in need in the name of our triune God for his glory and for the good of those he sends us to. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we are thankful for your word and we ask that you would use it to form us, reform us, change us, unite us. I've been encouraged, Lord, by so many people in this congregation over the past 15 years who live by these principles. They are generous. They look to help. They are bright examples of Jesus and of faithfulness. And I'm so encouraged by it, Lord. I pray that their example would be replicated because their example is simply the example of Jesus, however imperfect. I pray, God, that that we would be known as a church that is both doctrinally serious but also compassionately serious, Lord, that we, that we would care about people, that we would value the people that you've sent us to, and that as we are able to identify the needs, that we would be moved in unity without compulsion from outside to serve those who need help, who can't help themselves. In Jesus' name, amen.